So, Lord God, you are the fount of every blessing. Lord, I must not really believe that because I, I wonder, my heart wonders after other things, and yet if you're the fount of everything, every blessing, that, that means everything that is to be desired, everything that if we could see it truly we would desire comes from you, is created by you. And so, Lord God, we do pray that you would reveal yourself to us and that seeing you, we would worship you in spirit and in truth. I thank you that you are revealing yourself to us, and I pray that you would do that this morning through your word preached. In Jesus' name, help us to preach. Amen. Did you hear that? Did you hear the, did you hear the trumpets? Hopefully uh, you remember that from a few weeks ago and the sermon we called the soundtrack to the end of the world. We noted that when you hear trumpets, it changes the meaning of whatever event you may be experiencing. The seven trumpets, you remember, sound at the opening of the seventh seal on the seven-sealed scroll from the strong right hand of God. If the scroll is all of space and time, the opening of the seventh seal reveals the meaning of all space and time. And Jesus opens the seal. Jesus reveals the meaning of space and time. And Jesus is the meaning of space and time. Jesus is God's judgment. Jesus is the end and the end is good. The trumpets are another series of, of seven, like the seven days of creation and the seven seals, and so they resound back through the seven days of creation, proclaiming the end, and the end is good. In other words, they are hope, hope. Well, immediately after the seventh seal is broken and before the seven angels begin to blow the seven trumpets, there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. John watches the trumpets given to the seven angels. Then John watches another angel stand on the altar and mix our prayers with incense, remember? And the fragrance rises before the throne. This angel is our high priest and our mediator, who must also be the angel of Yahweh, who when you read the Old Testament, you, you realize, well, who else could this be other than, than Jesus. And that's what we preached on last week. Prayer from the other side of silence. Jesus helps us pray. Which means that Jesus helps us hope. But both prayer and hope. I don't know about you. But for me have been rather frustrating. John 14, 13. Jesus said this. Whatever you ask in my name. This I will do. Then in the very same conversation at the Last Supper, he says, until now, y'all, you 13 disciples who've been with me three years, have not asked one thing in my name. That's frustrating. So I kind of get tired of asking and I get tired of, of hoping. 
St. Paul writes this, We boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Romans 5, 3 through, through 5. Does not disappoint us. That's, that's such a fascinating verse because Paul doesn't really specify the hope. As if any hope, any real hope, will not disappoint us. Hope will not disappoint us, and yet all hope disappoints us for a time, right? Solomon wrote, hope deferred makes the heart sick, Proverbs 13, 2. Yet all hope is deferred for a time, or the hope has never entered into time. You, you, you wouldn't know hope if the moment that you hoped, you got the very same thing that you hoped for. Hope is like an empty place, waiting to be filled. Hope, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a, a tree of life, maybe eternal life. Years ago, many of you hoped that the Broncos would win the Super Bowl. Remember? 1980s was a hope deferred. It felt like an ache. And then in 1998, they did win the Super Bowl, and the ache turned into ecstasy. But it wouldn't, wouldn't have been ecstasy if you'd never ached. Hope must feel like ecstasy in eternity, but in time, at first, it must feel like an ache. A painful longing. And so often, I, well, I want to just stop. <laughs> just stop hoping. Because it hurts. This is the Hearst Castle in San Simeon, California. 56 bedrooms, 61 bathrooms, 19 city rooms, 127 acres of gardens, indoor and outdoor swimming pools, tennis courts, a movie theater, an airfield, and the world's largest petting zoo, all on top of this mountain next to the sea. Pretty cool. It was built by the newspaper baron William Randolph Hearst and donated to the state of California in the 1950s, provided that the Hearst family could then use it at their dis discretion. Patty Hearst still tells of how she'd hide from tour groups behind the statues uh, around the Neptune pool that you can see there in the lower uh, right foreground. Hide from the tour groups as they go through touring the, the castle. In the distance, I think you can see the town of San Simeon. In the late 80s, when I was a seminary student in Los Angeles, living in, in Van Nuys, Susan and I would sometimes escape to a little hotel there in San Simeon. Susan loved to tour the castle, and I loved our intimate time at the hotel in San Simeon. So while we'd be touring the castle, I would imagine that it belonged to me and Susan. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Our little Garden of Eden on the mountain by the sea. And I would think to myself, oh yeah, that, that would be heaven. In 1988, Susan was pregnant and I was about to graduate from Fuller Seminary. So, so then I would imagine my family on my mountain where I would write books about Jesus that everyone would want to read and then play with the kids in the afternoons, make love to my bride in the evenings, and that, that, that would really, that would be heaven. But it seemed like too much to ask. Is it too much to ask? 
20 years later, many of those dreams seemed to have come true. I kind of did have a castle on a mountain. I'd written a couple books about Jesus and had agents and stuff like that. All my kids lived at home and they enjoyed the castle. And then it all got taken away. After growing a church, I seem to have shrunk a church. I want God to fill up all the seats in this building, and then I, I wonder, is it too much to ask? Sometimes it seems like it, and so I stop asking. I want people to read my last book, but they haven't, pretty much. And, and I wonder, is it too much to ask? It would seem so. And so I don't most of the time. I want time with my children, and they're all moving away. Becky's moving out of the house next, next week. Is it too much to ask? I'm 56. Susan's 57. And I think of those romantic evenings in our 20s, and is it too much to ask? Every one of you is experiencing the exact same thing in a different way. And so you wonder, is it too much to ask? Just a job, is it too much to ask? Just a girlfriend, is it too much to ask? Just a friend, is it too much? To, just a body that works, is it too much to ask? Is it too much to ask? And you're scared to hope, for the ache is almost unbearable. I watched my father as he died of lung disease. One day I will find myself in the exact same or a very similar sort of situation and I'll think to myself, one more breath. Is it too much to ask? Is it too much to hope? Recently a friend was struggling with hope and she sent me this video clip. It's Bill Murray describing the day that he caddied for the Dalai Lama. So he finished 18, and he's going to stiff me. And I say, hey, Lama, hey, how about a little something, you know, for the effort, you know. And he says, oh, uh, there won't be any money. But when you die on your deathbed, you will receive total consciousness. So I got that going for me. <laughs> when you die, you will receive total consciousness. So I got that going for me, which is nice. Well, at the opening of the seventh seal, John watches Jesus mix our prayers with incense and then offer them on the altar as he appears to make atonement, just like the high priest would make atonement on the Day of Atonement going behind the veil, which inaugurated the Sabbath of the Sabbaths, the Jubilee. Verse 6, now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. 
The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, uh, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead woe 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 to those who dwell upon the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow woe to those that make their home upon the earth woe to you scribes and pharisees woe to you religious elite woe to you that are rich woe to you that are full now woe to you when all men speak well of you said jesus and the fifth angel blew his trumpet. And I saw a star falling from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. He opened the shaft of the abyss, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Now John describes a plague that I think we'll need to talk about more in our, in our, in our next message from the Re Revelation. It's a plague of demons. Verse 11. They have as king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I had a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the day, the, the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000, I heard their number. Now, John seems to describe a plague of armies. We'll talk about that more in our next message as well. Verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Thus endeth the reading of God's word, and now may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. <sighs> Maybe this would be a good time to remind you as well that I, Peter Hyatt, did not write the Bible. <laughs> but I do believe that in some amazing way, God did. And so let's try to wrestle the word and see if he's saying anything to us, what, what, what does this mean? The first trumpet is hail, fire, and blood. It's just like the first and seventh plagues upon Egypt. Uh, you might remember that they meant condemnation to the Egyptians, but liberty to the Jews. At the second trumpet, a great burning mountain is cast into the sea, and one-third of the sea turns to blood. Some people think the mountain is Babylon because of Jeremiah and a prophecy in chapter 51 where he talks about Babylon as this, as this mountain. And soon we will witness Babylon destroyed. 
Many people think it's Mount Zion, for Jerusalem is referred to as Babylon as we go further on in the Revelation, and Jerusalem sits on Mount Zion. Jesus did say, if you have faith, you will say to this mountain, the second time he said that, he was standing on Mount Zion, be taken up and cast in the sea, and it will happen. You may remember that as Jesus was crucified, it kind of did happen. The whole mountain began to shake. Mount Zion, an earthquake, and the gospel went to the nations. That's the sea. And then in 70 AD, Rome literally plowed Mount Zion and Jerusalem right into the ground. Maybe it's Mount Zion. Or maybe Mount Sinai, the burning mountain of God. Or maybe Mount Vesuvius. In 79 AD, that great burning volcano was cast into the sea. Ten to 15,000 people were killed, encased in stone in Pompeii or burned and then sunk on ships in the Bay of Naples. At the third trumpet, a great star falls to the earth. It turns a third of the water bitter. It's like the undoing of the great miracle at Mara, which means bitter, when Moses threw a tree into the bitter water and it became sweet. See, it's like God's hand is being removed from his people, undoing the blessing. Jeremiah 9.15, he, he will give disobedient Israel wormwood to eat and poison water to drink. At the fourth trumpet, a third of the light from the heavenly bodies is kept from shining. The fourth of the, seventh of the, the, fourth of the seven trumpets undoes what God did on the fourth of the seven days of creation. In Romans, Paul describes God's wrath as if God's wrath is simply God removing his hand, and, and of course it is, for he creates and upholds all things with his word. So apart from his word, creation is uncreated. It's desecrated. At the fifth trumpet, demons come from the abyss. At the sixth trumpet, we see armies. Just the Calvary is 200 million strong. This is like every army that has ever marched. And, and why do armies march? Psalm chapter 2. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, his Messiah. They make covenants and they go to war because they hate God's salvation. Jesus. Now, there's a whole world of speculation about when these things happen, but it seems rather obvious to me that they have happened, are happening, and will happen. Things happen in force with at least one of the seals, then in thirds with the trumpets, then entirely with the bowls. Opening seals reveals meanings. Uh, trumpets sounding proclaims things, and bowls, they finish things. So perhaps in one particular event like a war or a school shooting, for some, seals are opened. For some, trumpets are sounding. For some, bowls of wrath are being poured out upon the earth. Think, think what you will about the past or the future, but watch the news tonight, and I think you would have to agree that at least some of these things are happening right now. And that raises then an obvious question. Why are these things happening? 
And this seems to be the utterly bizarre answer. Because we said our prayers. A few weeks ago, we asked the question, why is Jesus opening these seals? And we realized it's because John wept, right? (laughs) And we all kind of asked him to do so. We all asked, what is the meaning of creation? What is good and evil? And we're now asking, why is this suffering happening as the trumpets are sounding? Well, according to the Revelation, it's because we said our prayers. We all asked, what is good and evil? And now we just prayed, deliver us from evil. In Jesus' name, God save. God save. Revelation 8, 5. The last verse that we read last week, remember in our sermon on prayer, Then the angel took the censer. This is the censer that the angel used to mix our prayers with the incense and then offer them on the altar. Verse five, then the angel, this angel of Yahweh, then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. It wasn't the trumpets that caused the lightning and the rumbling and the earthquake. It was your prayers. Now you may think, well, I didn't pray for an earthquake. (laughs) No. What did you pray for? Well, you prayed that you would be saved, right? You prayed in Jesus' name, and that name means God is salvation. He wants you to pray that. You prayed that you'd be saved. You would hope that God would save us from earthquakes. But the Bible never says that God saves us from earthquakes. In fact, in quite a few places, he saves folks with earthquakes, remember? Paul and Silas in, in the prison, the earthquake happened, and people come out of the, out of the tombs. He saves folks with earthquakes. What does he save us from? Well, Scripture says he delivers us from, quote, this present evil ion, this age. That's Galatians 1. And the dominion of darkness, Colossians 1. And the fear of death and lifelong bondage, Hebrews chapter 2. And Scripture claims that we're already dead in our trespasses and sins. So he must save us uh, from, from death with something like the death of death. Revelation chapter 20, the second death. Romans 8, 24, who will deliver me, says Paul, who will deliver me from this body of death, of death. He saves you from what Paul calls the flesh, and so he saves you from the wrath to come, which is revealed against sin in the flesh. Romans 8, Matthew 1, 21, the angel says, name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Our sin is our own bad judgment. Jesus is God's good judgment. Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from evil, or perhaps more accurately translated, deliver us from the evil one. So no man is our enemy, but evil is our enemy. Before the fall, before the fall, get this, God says it's not good. That's evil. It's not good that Ha'adam, the man, is alone. Not good. That's God's judgment. At the opening of the seventh seal, everyone sees God's judgment. The atonement. Atonement means at 
one-ment. Once you've been atoned for, you're no longer alone. That's God's judgment. Remember this slide from last week. This is the slide we looked at last week. At the opening of the seventh seal, everyone sees the judgment of God. And Jesus helps us pray for the judgment of God, which is everything good, which is the Sabbath of Sabbath, which is the jubilee, which is the ecdecasis, the bringing out of righteousness, all that's right, which is the atonement, which is salvation, which is somehow Jesus himself. We pray. And now seven trumpets sound. There's only one other place in all of Scripture where it talks about seven trumpets sounding. And that's Joshua chapter 6, right outside the walls of Jericho. In July, I preached a sermon on that text titled, How to Conquer the Promised Land. And I told you that the revelation is like the conquest of Jericho on steroids. So if you get confused, go back and read that message, all right? When Joshua entered the Promised Land, just before he came to Jericho, he encountered the angel of Yahweh, the God-man. Joshua asked him, remember, he says, whose side are you on, ours or theirs? And the commander of God's army says, no. But as the commander of the Lord's armies, I have come. And yet he's bearing a drawn sword. He's battling something. He's not going to battle against Canaanites on the other side of the wall. And he's not going to battle with the Israelites on this side of the wall. Read the story and you find out he's going to battle with the wall. Everyone inside the wall is devoted in Hebrew. Haram. Sometimes it's translated devoted to destruction, but that's not really what it means. Haram comes from the same root as the Arabic word harem. And, you know, like a sheik has a harem, and he really likes his harem. Harem is that which belongs exclusively to the Lord. The Lord doesn't despise what is harem, but claims it as his own sacred possession, and he often receives it with fire. On Pentecost, the disciples devoted themselves, remember, as living sacrifices And God received their devotion. He received them with tongues as of fire resting on each of their heads. If you resist the fire, it burns. But if you surrender to the fire, it's, it's ecstasy. Joshua 7, we find out in the next chapter that all of Israel is also harem. Isaiah, Jeremiah declare that Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem are all harem. Actually, Isaiah 34, we read that the whole world is harem, often translated devoted to destruction, and yet Isaiah 66, all people worship, at the end of Isaiah, all people worship as all corpses are burned up in the valley of Gehenna. Zephaniah 3.8, God will consume all the earth in the fire of his jealousy so that, Zephaniah 3.9, all the people of the earth might worship him in one accord. Not a Honda Accord, but like a living temple accord. Well, harem clearly meant a painful destruction in space and time for many, but not for all. If you remember, in Jericho, there was a harlot named Rahab. Rahab and those with her were also devoted to Yahweh. 
but it seemed like they had devoted themselves, even before it says they were devoted. They, they were devoted, but not for destruction, at least not in that way at that time. If you remember, Rahab welcomed the Israelites, and she welcomed the judgment of God. She even married an Israelite named Salman. Rahab and Salman communed in the sacrament of a covenant with no walls. I'm talking the two became one flesh and gave birth to life. Actually, the life. Rahab is the great, 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 super great grandmother of Jesus. And Salman is the super great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. The angel of Yahweh, the commander of God's army, Joshua the high priest who mediates the covenant and our prayers. So on one side of the wall is his grandma, on the other side of the wall is his grandpa, his body. The commander of the Lord's army's body is literally dependent on the destruction of these walls. He loves Canaanites and he loves Israelites, but he hates the walls. Ephesians 2.14, he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Well, the seventh time around, on the seventh day, the priests were to blow the seven trumpets of Yobel sometimes translated ram's horn, but normally jubilee or jubilee. They were to proclaim jubilee before the Ark of the Covenant, which is the very judgment seat of God. Jubilee is the Sabbath of the Sabbath. Remember when all debts are forgiven, when prisoners are released, when, when people returned to their inheritance. Jubilee is where we get the words jubilant and jubilation. The seven trumpets are jubilation. But not everyone was jubilant when the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Israelites were jubilant at the sound of the seven trumpets. Canaanites, not so jubilant at the sound of the seven trumpets. How about you? Actually, some Canaanites, Rahab and those with her, were jubilant. Rahab and those with her were jubilant. They welcomed the judgment of God. I, I would imagine that she, Rahab, considered Jericho to be like a, like a prison. They worshipped idols in Jericho, which probably include ritualized prostitution and rape, and Rahab was a harlot. It probably included the, the ritualized sacrifice of infants and Children, Jericho was hell on earth and infected with demons. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if Rahab occasionally whispered this desperate prayer into the darkness. God, if you're there, if you exist, save me. Save me. Rahab is a picture of the bride of Christ. And according to Paul in Ephesians, all of humanity is destined to be his body. I think that also means his bride. So why weren't more Canaanites jubilant when the walls came tumbling down? And why aren't we jubilant when our walls come tumbling down? Tuesday morning, I woke up thinking to myself, hey, Maybe we have Stockholm Syndrome. 
You know what Stockholm Syndrome is? This is the Wikipedia definition. I quote, Stockholm Syndrome is a condition that causes hostages to develop a psychological alliance with their captors as a survival strategy during captivity. The premier example of Stockholm Syndrome is Patty Hearst, heiress to William Randolph Hearst, and all the time she could ever want at the Hearst Castle on top of the mountain by the sea. The granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst was abducted by two men and a girl in a bizarre kidnapping. No ransom note, no phone calls, no word, nothing. The SLA is the people's army and we fight in their interests. The FBI said the girl in the wig with the automatic rifle was Patricia Hurst. Rich college girl turned armed terrorist in a matter of weeks. Southern California's largest manhunt continues. They were looking for Patty Hurst, and she was hiding in what they called a safe house. Terrified that the walls would come tumbling down, for in her insecurity and fear, she had identified with her captors. She'd given up hope in the mountain by the sea. Patty Hearst was set to inherit the Garden of Eden. According to St. Paul, you will inherit all things, for all things are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. So why are you terrified when the walls start tumbling down? What's with you and the walls? Why do trumpets make you nervous? Why are you afraid to hope? In other words, why are you afraid of salvation? And now work with me and my incredible graphic art skills. But imagine that this is a soul. One lonely soul. The Lord makes a soul from dust of the earth and breath from himself. He says, do not eat of the tree in the middle of the garden, for the day you eat of it, dying you will die. The devil tempts the soul, saying, dying you will not die, but you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The soul takes and becomes self-conscious, aware that it is not good, but evil. It's alone. A self-conscious soul is conscious of its own pain, its own pleasure, perhaps maybe only conscious of its own pain and own pleasure. A self-conscious soul grows a self-conscious body, what Paul calls the flesh, a body that only feels its own pain and its own pleasure. Adam and Eve took from the tree in the middle of the garden and became self-conscious. Then Adam and Eve hid themselves from God in the trees and hid themselves from each other in the leaves from the trees. Each tried to save themselves from God and the other. They made clothes. Clothes are like a wall behind which you hide. Safe and alone. Necessary in this world, but alone. The Lord found the man and the woman and kicked them out of the garden and barred their way to the tree in the middle of the garden lest they eat or continue to eat of the tree of life and remain that way forever, alone. He kicked them out of the garden and cursed the earth 
Perhaps it was already subjected to futility. Whatever the case, do you realize that all your life you have been living or existing in a goddamned world? I don't say that to be cute, but because it's theologically and biblically accurate. God cursed the earth so that it would not be easy for you to remain as you are, alone. The curse was God's first act of redemption, or, or maybe the second, because first he went and he found them hiding in the trees and the, in the leaves. Now imagine the surface of the earth covered with a world of these self-conscious and anxious souls. Suppose that two of them formed an alliance, realizing that they could each best protect their own interests from the interests of others with a wall around them both. Actually, if one of them is male and one is female, they can strip themselves of their clothes and commune in such a way that for a moment they will become conscious of the other and even produce another soul called a baby. Pretty cool. It's a sign that God created in their flesh before the fall to give them hope. They taste it, but they often seize control of it and make each other even more self-conscious than they were before. Most of the time, their marriage is just a contract to secure self-interest, the self-interest of, of each, like two ticks and no dog. Two bloodsuckers bound together and no blood. Some call it family values. <laughs> Sometimes several individuals form a contract to secure self-interest. It's, it's often called a clan or a, a tribe. They develop traditions and rituals with which they create and enforce walls. Sometimes they go to war with other tribes. If several of these tribes live in one location, they call it a city, uh, create laws, and in ancient times they would actually build a wall. The, the first act of open rebellion after the fall against the specific command of God was to build a city. Cain is commanded to wander the face of the earth, but instead he builds a city. Jericho was a Canaanite city. Jerusalem was also a Canaanite city that then became a Jewish city, but it's still condemned, still condemned. We each hope for a city, right? A place to belong. We hope for a city and a tribe and a family and a body that works, and then we wonder why it seems like it's all condemned, it's all falling apart. Cities will band together and form nations. Each nation will have something like a king. We think a good nation is one that has a relative balance, a relative balance of self-interest, and a bad nation is one where many are forced to serve uh, the self-interest of, of the king. But do you see, it's all self-conscious self-interest, and it's all dead. It's all dead. Not just, not just me first, but Colorado first. And then America first. America first because it helps me put Colorado first. And Colorado first because it helps me put me first. And putting me first is the opposite of love and the very definition of death. Jesus said the first will be last and he who exalts himself will be humbled. And now listen very, very closely. All worldly governments 
put themselves first. Create a universe of laws and build walls around themselves. All human governments, that is, all the principalities and powers of this world are contracts of self-interest. They each have a place, and each serves a purpose, but each is like a covenant with death, a covenant with death that we refer to as civilization. As the trumpet sounds, the walls of civilization and even the walls we refer to as our own flesh, they all start to crumble. We prayed, God save, and now he is. Chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. The ark of the covenant is the judgment seat of God, and his temple is not a stone building. It's the human soul. When human judgment reigns in the human soul, it looks something like this. Self-conscious, self-interest, shame, anxiety, pride, and fear. It's a soul preoccupied with its own safety and refusing to sacrifice. It's a soul that always takes and never gives. It's entirely alone, and it's not good for Ha'adam to be alone. When God's judgment comes, and begins to reign in the human soul, it looks something like this. It's called love, and it looks like worship. Worship is entirely non-self-conscious. It's other-conscious. You lose yourself and then find yourself in worship. It's not taking but giving, and yet the giving is the greatest of all forms of receiving. Worship is so important because it's non-self-centered. Worshiping the Lamb on the throne is so important for He is the entirely non-self-centered center of all things. He's the absolute first who makes Himself the very, very, very last. He's the head of the body. And this is the plan for the fullness of time to anacaphalio, bring together under one head all things in Him. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. Now imagine the surface of the new earth covered with a world of these unselfconscious and loving souls. See, it would look something like this. Not six billion lonely souls only banding together to protect their individual rights and thereby preserve their own deaths, but six billion cells all interconnected by one judgment sacrificing themselves as one life in one body, the body of Christ. Hope is an empty place longing to be filled with the endless river of life, which is the very blood of Christ. The, the life is in the blood. 
Well, now I just began to preach. And it's time to end. So I'll need to continue this in uh, two weeks. But for now, I want to leave you with this thought. I think each part of my body is somehow, my nose, you too, is somehow conscious of all of my body. Do you know what I mean? And each part enjoys the pleasures of the whole. And pleasure is the whole. I could say to each member of my body, the whole body is yours. (laughs) And I am yours. And you are mine. And Jesus says to you, all things are yours. And I am yours. And I belong to God. I mean, when every dividing wall of hostility is torn down, all things are united in him and everything is good, won't you be conscious of all good things and enjoy all good things through him and in him? Which means your hopes will not disappoint you. And right now, they are preparing you. And your hopes are never too big. They are always too small. That's the problem. They're too small. Never too big always too small. Heaven is not just my own private castle on a mountain where I love and am loved by a few people. Heaven is an entire new creation where I love and I am loved by all. And I get to preach the gospel to all as all of them preach it to me. Heaven is all, including my castle on the mountain, but I have to surrender my castle on the mountain to inherit all, including the castle on the mountain. Some of you want to give up hope because you think that you'll never be married. But you will. Some of you want to give up hope because you think you'll never have children. But you will. And you do. Some of you want to give up hope because you think to yourself, I will always be alone. But you will not always be alone. You will be and actually are so very, very, very not alone. So I'm saying don't give up hope. I know it hurts, but hope will not disappoint you. In fact, hope is now preparing you to inherit all things. And it's hope that guards you from Stockholm Syndrome. That is identifying with your captor, giving up hope, and settling for hell. The devil is your captor, and he wants to convince you that heaven is hell and hell is heaven. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And so he took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. This is the judgment. (laughs) Place it on the throne in the temple that is your soul. Romans 5.5, hope does not disappoint us because 
God's love has been poured into our hearts. Colossians 3. It's love that binds everything together. There's a new Jerusalem coming down. And it's not dead. It's made with living stones. It has walls with huge doors in the walls. And they're always open. It sits on the mountain of God. It's not made by man in an effort to save himself. It's made by God. And it is salvation. In Jesus' name, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and place it in the temple. Amen. Yes, praising my Savior all the day long. Oh, Father, we see that your judgment is good, and so we surrender the castle. We surrender the city. We surrender the temple and invite you, judgment of God, to come and reign on the throne in our soul. I think we'd like to obey you, because <laughs> you're good. Thank you, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. And so there's no way, there's no way that you could hope more for yourself than the Father has already hoped from you before the very foundation of the world. Hoped and wished and willed. And this is the gospel. He gets his way. <laughs> and his way is Jesus. That's, that's pretty cool. And just one other little side benefit to believe in this stuff. I don't know about you, but I'm, I tend to be, I think I, by nature, tend to be a rather negative person. I mean, I'll see the, the negative in things pretty quickly and be pretty critical of, of myself and people around me and life. But, but, but believing this stuff, um, I, I can say something genuinely. You know, you come home and your wife, like my wife, say, well, how was your day? And sometimes I've just been upstairs in my office, how was, was your day? And I can always say with confidence, you know what? It was actually a really awesome day, considering that we're living in a goddamned world. <laughs> and you see, at that moment, a little bit of the New Jerusalem comes down. I think it's coming down all the time when we believe, when we have faith. Sometimes it even shows up as miracles. And Scripture says those are gifts from God, and they're signs, but, but they're signs of something beyond what you can even begin to hope. So in Jesus' name, keep hoping. Believe the gospel. Amen. If you'd like prayer, members of the prayer team are down front, and they'd love to, love to pray with you.